Life is an endless stream of challenges, but no worries. Manoj is bringing the world's best minds right here for you. My gosh, Manoj, you just blew my mind. Thank you, universe. Manoj, thank you. I'm so grateful. It makes me feel a bit better. Thank you. Bootstrapping Your Dreams is here to give you what you need to succeed. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Bootstrapping Your Dreams show. I'm your host, Manoj Agarwal, and today we'll be talking to Krista Qualls. So Krista is the CEO of Corel Software and sits on the company's board of directors. Corel builds software solutions that simplify the task journey for knowledge workers. So um, some of the products you may have uh, used from Corel, Corel Draw, WinZip, and many more. So Corel is a KKR portfolio software company. KKR is one of the most prestigious private equity giants with assets of more than 470 billion under management. Krista is an accomplished executive with more than two decades of experience leading businesses, initiating financial and operational initiatives. Currently, she also sits on the board of Affirm Inc. and Kimberly Clark. Prior to Corel, uh, Krista served as the CEO of OpenTable and had previously held executive roles at Nextdoor and the Walt Disney Company. While working at OpenTable, she led the company through a, a period of transformational change, successfully transitioning to cloud-based small business solutions and driving meaningful bottom and top-line growth across global uh, operations. And as senior vice president at Interactive Games and Walt Disney, she oversaw Disney's profitability and helped the company rank second in the global mobile game publishing space. Prior to OpenTable, uh, she worked as the business she, uh, chief business officer of Nextdoor, a marketplace that connects local communities with small businesses. Krista studied economics at Vienna University of Economics and Business and graduated from Carnegie Mellon University with a BS in economics and German. She also received MBA from Harvard Business School. Welcome, Krista. Thank you so much. Uh, I think you got it all. I don't know yes. what else I can add. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll dive into that. But before that, you know, this is a, a, a very proud day for me. I was telling my team prior to this interview, the very first software, this was back in 1980s, like 1985 or something. I was like 17 or 18. And the very first software I saw on any computer was a Corel Draw software. And I was so fascinated by it, like, you know, the creativity that it can unlock and and everything and now today i get to talk to the ceo of corel so it's a it's a huge uh journey for me it has been are you canadian or no you're no i i uh i was born and brought up in india and uh, so okay. that's why it's even more uh you know amazing <laughs> to, uh, to come across the the oceans and then speak to you yeah no well i mean i think you know certainly for for many canadians corel is very much um you know embedded in the fabric of, you know, what it means to, you know, because it was one of the few tech and startup companies that came out of it. I think what we are attempting to do for this next phase of Corel and really part of, you mentioned KKR at the outset, which is, um, and then even how I got to the company when, when I first got pinged, I remembered it too. I was like, oh, like Corel Draw from like, I remember that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I was like, but I don't remember much since, so fill me in. And I think it was in that moment with um, the John Park who leads the tech practice at KKR. He said, let me walk you through our investment thesis. And it was through that experience of understanding how they saw and understood and appreciated really the long tail 
of software, you know, essentially once you get people using a piece of software and then they, you know, continue to use it, find benefit from it, um, there's a lot that you can then go and do from that. And that's really in the face of what we're doing. You know, I saw this very moldable lump of clay almost to say, hey, we have all of these software assets, Parallels, that, um, um, which is actually our largest asset. And what could we do with all these things? How do we put them together? And um, it, it's, you know, taking us and saying, hey, let's reimagine our brand. Let's reimagine our purpose. Let's reimagine where all these things sit together. And from that, we came to this conclusion. And really, it was thrust upon us with the pandemic, which is we are going to be at the centerpiece and the conversation about redefining what the future of work is going to mean. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to enable you. We will help you ideate create and share all of those things but it's really about making knowledge work better yeah no it's it's great um and also the longevity of corel has been amazing because you know uh, as you said like there are a lot of um there are a lot of companies that come and go and uh, canadians have left a mark you know with a few companies and it has been there for decades so that speaks to the the impact that corel has had on uh, on uh, millions of people around the globe um, so let's dive into that. So first of all, you know, I would love to learn about your career path, your journey, your history. How did you get to uh, to where you are today? You know, coming from Europe as well. Uh, I'm I'm sure uh, that was another challenge you had to overcome, like you know, uh, cultural uh, barriers and and things of that nature. So help us understand how you got here. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, I spent time in Vienna during my college years, but I, I was born and raised actually in oh, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Pennsylvania. Got it, got it. Um, and so I, I actually grew up a, um, a pretty, you know, uh, we did not grow up with a lot of money. My mom was a school teacher. My dad uh, worked at U.S. Steel. Uh, he was actually um, writing. He was one of the first ones who actually, um, he taught himself how to code and he was writing computer programs around how to automate the process inside, honestly, the steel mill. And, um, but we didn't have a lot of money. I was the six of seven kids. I grew up in, you know, like I said, outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the best school that I could actually like see was Carnegie Mellon. And, and so, um, you know, I worked really hard. I played sports in high school, um, which I actually think is really important, especially not just, you know, for female executives. So there's good data to show that um, a, a it was, I think 70% of the fortune um, most powerful women list participated in, in competitive high school or college sports. And that's a really interesting kind of backdrop because I think for me anyway, sports was really a place where I learned how to be a teammate. I learned how to lead as a captain. I learned how to fail. I learned how to lose and get back up and, and figure it out again. I learned to work hard. I learned to keep your mindset on a goal. And even as I try to teach my kids, you know, how do you, I always say, how do you manufacture grit in Silicon Valley? Yeah. It's hard. And, you know, I think with sports, you know, we've been able to show kids how to lose and get back up and build muscle memory and do hard really well. Um, so I played sports. I was good at school. Went to Carnegie Mellon. I played basketball and I ran cross country at, at Carnegie Mellon. Um, I got in a scholarship to go there, which because I couldn't have afforded it. And when I was coming out of school in 1995, 
you looked around the world and you're like, okay, where, where can I go make some money? <laughs> Honestly, that's what I was looking yeah. at. I was like, I didn't, cause I didn't have any, I was like, well, wall street, that's the place where people go to make money. So I, I went to wall street and I worked as uh, an analyst at Merrill Lynch and I was in the bond desk. So I always say like right after Michael Lewis wrote liars poker, all of those guys, after they left Solomon, went to go work at Merrill Lynch, a lot of them anyway. And so I was like instructed in the hard knocks, like, you know, Wolf of Wall Street world of, of you know, finance. And that was a really interesting way to enter a career because I think it toughened me up, not always in good ways, but it gave me a sense of, of foundation for, you know, being able to analyze problems, anal use numbers and everything that I do and being really data driven and data oriented. Um, and so that was the starting point. And then from there, you know, we, um, I knew I was going to go to business school. And so Harvard Business School seemed like a great place to go. So got in there. That was great. And then graduated and went out to Silicon Valley in the year 2000. <laughs> so uh, .com 1.0 saw my first crash. Thankfully, at that time, I had more debt than equity on my own book. So mm -hmm. I didn't suffer individually that much. But it was fascinating to watch. It was fascinating to see how many companies that had gotten and been worth so much literally become worth nothing overnight. And from there, that began my, you know, the other part of my Wall Street career, which was really being an equity analyst and understanding which companies go public, which companies don't, which companies fail, what are the preconditions of what makes a good company, what are the business models that sit in around it. And so that was really the foundation for me was having a strong understanding of, you know, company, P&L, operating system work uh, and, and being able to put all those pieces together in a way that built pattern recognition for like, okay, this is going to succeed and this is not. Mm -hmm. And I get to understand all the components of that. That's awesome. That's great. Great journey. So uh, it seems like uh, you've had, uh, uh, you know, you've had uh, experience in so many different domains like finance, uh, Wall Street and, and software and Silicon Valley. So how did that, you know, um, how what are the some of the key differences or similarities that you found in because i i find it fascinating when i look at different industries how they operate there are so many similarities of course but then there are so many differences as well so what are some of the key uh, things that you notice which may have helped you in in your career path I mean, the good news is I was analyzing technology companies as uh, on Wall Street. So my world, and it's not like I was looking at oil and gas companies. Yeah, like yeah, I yeah. was looking at tech and, you know, took, you know, Google public in 2004. And so really saw these companies in infancy and then saw them crest to being public and then saw them go and crest from there. And so, you know, it, you know, I look back in time when I, when Google went public and my thesis at the time <laughs> wait for it. It's amazing. Um, it was just like, well, it should at least trade at the same multiple that Yahoo does. Yeah, yeah, at the yeah. time, Yahoo was, you know, the stalwart and Google was the up and comer. And it's funny to even look back and think about how different the world is. But within that, I remember actually the distinction when I went to visit Google, you know, meeting Sergey and, and, and Larry and Eric, but, but, but more importantly, they had solved the ad problem with, technology. They were using algorithms. And then I went and remember visiting Yahoo and seeing this like football field size worth of people for the overture business, the ad business. And they were using humans mm -hmm. to figure out which ad to put up. And, and so it was an immediate, literally just a visceral visibility of like seeing, 
oh, here's Google using technology. Here's Yahoo using humans. This is probably going to go in one direction. That's pretty yeah, obvious. Yeah. And I think being up up close and personal with that. Um, but I think the other thing that um, I had to come to terms with on my own was just all of this diversity of experience is actually a really good thing. Yeah. And yeah. I um, apologized for years and years and years for my nonlinear background. And then I read this book, Range by David Epstein. And you start to learn, actually, that's the right thing. It's, yeah. it's I'm going to go and investigate a lot of things and I'm going to draw the far analogy of this thing over here. It's going to actually serve me and, and be the source of inspiration and creativity for this other problem over here. And I think people get caught up in saying, like, there's got to be this one direct and specific path. And when, in fact, all of the good things that I've ever come from come from this, like, oh, this reminds me of this problem from yeah. this point in my journey. And I think being able to, to, to lean into that, lean into your curiosity and creativity as, as an up and comer is really useful because you never know, honestly, where these things are going to come all together in a way that makes sense for you. Yeah, no, exactly. I think uh, that is, as you rightly pointed out, a lot of people, they focus on uh, getting getting deep into one area of expertise but as you said like the the realization that comes after diving into multiple areas is is so profound because you can now exponentially grow your knowledge by borrowing ideas from multiple places right awesome. that's not to say you don't have to put in the work i think like, yeah, you know, yeah. again, i think as an analyst too i mean like you know you talk about ten thousand hours the amount yeah, yeah. thing but like I mean, I, I worked in that job, you know, from I'd get it, I worked in the West Coast time and I came in at like 430 in the morning because I was trying to work East Coast, West Coast hours on the market and would work till 11. And but I think what I built through that time period was a very specific skill. Like I could look at a company and and very quickly understand whether or not it had the right ingredients potentially for success. And I think, you know, the other thing I you know try to impart with people is just figure out what your skill is or where you are spiky. And so now I've been able to apply that skill across many different disciplines and dimensions. But I go back to like, I put my little analyst hat on a lot mm -hmm. and I go back and say, okay, how would I look at this? And so, um, you know, even with my own kids, like talking to them about like consultant or banking, like just like you need to build a skill and understand something and then you can take it into a lot of different dimensions. Absolutely. So now, now since we are at the crossroads uh, again, you know, uh, technology is sort of evolving. It's allowing us to do remote work, hybrid work. Uh, that's one question I wanted to ask, like, what is your vision? Because you, you have a, a very good vantage point as you, as you are building tools for this new workforce, where do you see as a world in general, we are going, are, are we, uh, are, are we going to see a radical change in the way that we work? Is remote work going to be like uh, more, uh, how can I say it? Like the, the primary way of working? W what are your views about that? First of all, yeah, I mean, uh, I've I will admit, I have completely changed my perspective. So if you had asked me in 2019 about remote work, I would have said, never going to happen, never be able to work. Also for myself as a leader, I need to kiss the babies and press the flesh and talk to people in the elevator, never going to work. And then, you know, like the pandemic happens and I onboarded in this role in the middle of the pandemic. 
And I actually saw this organization, which, by the way, was not was already remote first. They just weren't specific or intentional about it because we had offices in Austin, in Seattle, in Ottawa, in Taiwan, in Frankfurt. We were everywhere anyway. So, like, I don't know who who was fooling you know themselves by thinking like, oh, we could just you know gather like we're you know some sort of ancient tribe every single day and get stuff done. And and moreover, what I you know have seen is just this proliferation of communication and collaboration tools that make it all possible. Mm -hmm. And so from Zoom to Teams to, you know, uh, cloud-based software, like you would never go in and say, if I had a blank sheet of paper, you would never create the office that we left in 2019. You yeah. just wouldn't do that. It's a bad design. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to like commute a bunch of people in. I'm going to maybe try and gather them. Like, and this isn't to say that we don't gather as an organization. We absolutely do. But there's three reasons to come together. The first is, you know, large group collaboration work. Sometimes it's easier for us to do, you know, like sprint planning or long range planning in a group. Fine. We'll gather for that. Socialization, like it's really important to build trust with your teams to break bread. We're still tribal species. We still need to like neurobiologically connect. We need to do that. Uh, and we're going to do that. And we still do that. Or the third reason to come to get in the office was like, you just need your personal productivity pod to be there. And I think the personal productivity pod is where people get really confused because this idea that it has to be in the office because as a worker, I need to watch that you're in your personal productivity. Yeah, right, right. What if you're not? Out? And this idea that you're not an adult, that you're not inspired or connected to the mission of the company, that you're not going to work because you want to have impact. You're only worked because you're being watched. And I just feel like it's, it's a very old line, old way of thinking. And so we don't even, we didn't even call it the great resignation because the employees were doing the right thing. It, we call it the great adaptation mm -hmm. and the companies need to adapt to where the workers are. And I still think that, you know, the, the, the CEOs are like, you must get into the office. Those CEOs are having a personal identity crisis. <laughs> yes, that's, and that's they're true. like, wait a minute, I'm not CEO at home, by the way, yeah, I have yeah. to lead in an entirely different way. Uh -huh. I have, I, you know, all of the things that I thought were what made me successful as the leader are being questioned. Yes, mm -hmm. they are. And you should question them alongside, but you are going to be with employees who are now questioning you. And I've seen it over and over again, where people, you know, I always say if Lizzo can't get people back to Google, nobody's getting people back to Google. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think uh, one thing that resonated, uh, the key message there is adaptation, because I, I think even as a species, we became so powerful, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the, the most powerful species on the planet because of our ability to adapt. You know, there has been so many, so many uh, changes in the environment as as we evolved, and that also needs to be shown in the workplace now. So I'm so um, glad that you know uh, Corel is is making such a big difference in that area. Now talking about your uh, own growth, so as you grow, uh, you know you've had such an amazing career. What are some of the mistakes or the challenges that that you remember that uh, were probably they turned out to be great opportunities, great lessons that you can share with us because. As I know, uh, you know, every successful person makes a lot of mistakes as they as they try to uh, go through that journey. I think the biggest mistake that I have made, honestly, was preventing my fall. So if you look back at my career, um, I have been 
pretty successful at maneuvering, you know, modifying. Again, I think maybe because I started my career on Wall Street, I was very, very willing to forsake my own values and beliefs, honestly, to find the success condition in the environment that I was operating in, mm -hmm. which again, I don't recommend to people, but I basically always say, I'm like, I went and played the game that was on the field. And if that's what it needed to be to be successful, I was going to do it. And maybe it was because of the hard scrabble background that I came from. You are listening to Bootstrapping Your Dreams show with Manu Jagarwal. Businesses face numerous challenges like finding the right product market fit, determining the market size, implementing a winning go-to-market strategy, crafting customer-centric USP, competitive analysis, looking for funding, building up cash flow and profitability. We have made a lot of free resources available to the entrepreneurial community, including this podcast. This podcast. We invite you to check out our websites and follow us on social channels. The links are in the show notes. We hope you find the resources useful and utilize them to grow your business. Grow your business. We also have some programs for entrepreneurs. If you find our content useful, then you will definitely find the programs outstanding so do check them out but eventually i got into a situation where there was no amount of me maneuvering or me juking and jiving or me modulating who i was that was going to make that experience successful and instead of capitulating and just saying, all right, I'm going to go find a new job. I dug in my heels and I was like, well, I, if I just do this one more thing, or if I just do like, or, and I was miserable for an entire year. And I think when I look back on that moment, I think what was the worst part was that I, I was stuck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you're stuck, no motion, good or bad really happens. You're just in this really terrible you know, I'll use like purgatory, like, like, like you're in this world, you're neither heaven nor hell, you're just stuck. Mm -hmm. And I think being in that state where you're not growing, you're not evolving, you're not changing, you're also not falling. I mean, I was preventing the fall mm. because I had never really fell before in a meaningful and significant way. And my narrative for myself ultimately needed to change. And so it used to be, I was like, I can make it happen under all circumstances. Well, that narrative now needed to be, I can make it happen with good people, or I can make it happen in these specific ways, but I can't always make it happen because I can't change the laws of gravity. And so I think that is the biggest thing is if you find that you are feeling just stuck, you're not making forward progress, you might also be, in my case, preventing the fall. And preventing the fall means like as soon as you fall, the good news is I've gotten up so many times. Like I yeah. do have muscle memory. This is back to sports. Like I've got muscle memory of falling and getting back up a thousand times. I know I can get back up. It does suck and it kind of hurts. But you like, you're like, oh, and then you always, I think the thing that I've, I've learned was what was on the other side. It's always better. That was the thing too, is like, I kept thinking small in my vision of what was possible. And what I learned was like, actually let yourself fall for a minute. And that doesn't mean like, just give up in the first time it gets tough. Like I held on. I mean, my hair was falling out. Like I was really holding on. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, once you fall, now you can go see 
what the new path has in store for you. And I've always thought like, and I've always believed and I've always experienced that what is on the other side is always better. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, uh, in that fall, um, you also grow because now you have faced the challenges, you have faced the demons and, and you have learned a new, some new skills as you're fighting through that. And so, as you said, like once it's over and when you can start, uh, new, you have much more power, more, much more skill to uh, to do much uh, much better. And then I think opportunities also, as you said, like newer opportunities also show up because we are always uh, sort of playing ourselves down, right? Well, I think I think you know when you're stuck, you're closed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. And being closed means that the new opportunities cannot find you. It's just yeah. not going to kind of, you know, unless you kind of. And it was for me anyway. I I had kind of gotten through all and I like it was a new year's it was literally a new physical year it was a new and I was like I am just I don't care I'm gonna leave the equity I'm gonna like just run I'm gonna do the thing I'm just I finally said I didn't care and I went on my first meeting I remember I actually it was it was with a very well-known Silicon Valley VC and they just didn't care that the thing that I was working on wasn't working. I, that was the other surprise. I was like, I have a, a friend whose Southern mother would be like, who's looking at you? Meaning like you're so in your own head around what you think your problems are, or how people might perceive you sometimes. And the reality was like this person in front of me was like, oh, great. You're coming free. Awesome. Maybe I can put you in this other great company. And it was just such a realization of, for me anyway, that I, you know, I didn't have to hold on for dear life. And in fact, I was closing myself up off of opportunities that were right in front of me. Those are great lessons. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. Now uh, let's flip it around and, and also talk about, you know, what are some of the secrets of your success? Like what makes you different than others? Because not a lot of people get to where you are, especially, you know, again, just talking about the tech industry, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of, um, I mean, a lot of male dominated, uh, and, um, not a lot of, uh, uh, you know, women and in, in the, in the leadership roles. So what are your secrets of success? Yeah. I mean, well, I think unfortunately, uh, part of one of my secrets to success or to this point was, I always joke that I showed up as a man to be accepted by men. Mm. So for the early part of my career, I think I kind of became a man, which is to say that I probably look, I think every leader has le like feminine and masculine qualities to leadership. Mm. And that's probably over. We, we could assign different names because gendered is so yeah. explosive these days, but, but really there are kind of those qualities. And I, radically overemphasized the masculine qualities of my leadership. Mm -hmm. By the way, I don't think I was nearly as good a leader as I am now, where I've actually, I've kind of embraced both sides of myself. I have masculine and feminine leadership qualities. I think I'm 10 times the better leader, but I think we have to look at environments and systems and structures. And I would say when I was kind of coming up in the world, I do not think that the prototypical kind of female leadership ca characteristics were going to be valued. Mm -hmm. And that's super sad. But here's the exciting thing. I think this next generation of, of leaders, diversity, I think that companies do care now. Leaders do care now. We're creating companies. Like one of the things we're trying to do at Corel, I'm trying to create the company that I wished I could have joined when I was 22. 
Mm-hmm. And the idea that we talk about psychological safety, we talk about all the things, by the way, that drive and we know are, are preconditions for high performing teams. Google studied this. Like if, if the one characteristic of a high performing team, it's psychological safety. So like, why wouldn't we create the environment that creates the best and highest performing teams? And I think before we, there was just this old line of way of thinking. So my job is now that I have some positional power is to say, I always tell people, it's not that I can change the rules of the game. I have to, I have to now create the preconditions, the systems and structures that enable other types of leaders to now be successful. Because Mm -hmm. I don't think one singular model of leadership actually makes, we all know heterogeneous decision-making yields a superior result. Mm -hmm. So why are we creating a world where there's one? I mean, the way I always put it is this way, Um, because we talk about 5% of the Fortune 500 CEOs are women. Well, guess what? Like, I think it's like some so something like 90% of Fortune 500 CEOs are taller than six feet. Mm. Some really <laughs> ridiculous number. So like, does that mean short people are inherently bad people? They're just kind of dumb short people. No, of course not. It's ridiculous even when you say it. But our evolutionary biology says tall person, better leader. Mm. And so what are the biases? What are the things that are embedded? And by the way, if you're tall, it doesn't help on Zoom anymore. So yeah. <laughs> we're all remote and nobody knows yeah. how tall we all are. Yeah. By the way, I am tall. So I think that's probably benefited me. I play basketball. Um, but it's it's just as an, a, another bias that is built into our systems and structure. And to kind of check all of those, to be like, okay, are only tall people really good leaders? No, mm. that's my bias. That's my evolutionary biology and psychology saying that that person is a better leader or if they speak a certain way if they look a certain way you know even this concept of like baby faceness versus like strong jaw bones and people will say one person's a better leader over another that's ridiculous again we know this but 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 how do you create a system that enables maybe your non-obvious leaders to find a space and to contribute because when we get more of our teams and people the companies are more successful we're using our you know, people in a higher and more productive way. Yeah, yeah. No, that's amazing. It's it's so interesting that even um, even when you're like working on managing a, a large uh, group of people, you have to be really uh, detail oriented about these kind of things. Where you know um, some of the things we know exist as a bias, but in order to notice that in ourselves or others, it takes a lot of um, energy to to go deeper into into these details and and at the same time managing the macro um the macro shift that is uh, that is uh, so to say you know go, going in the right direction or not i i mean i think that it, it, like if you have never been confronted with this problem it's harder to say that it matters and to orient yourself around it I have been hit in the face with this problem since the moment I entered the workforce. Mm -hmm. And so I have deep empathy for trying to understand what is my own lived experience versus the situation and the context that I'm entering. And I'm like, I know I'm capable yet this world like is saying this one thing or this type of behavior is the thing that we're going to reward. And again, I'm watching my own experience of becoming a CEO. So when I first became CEO at, open table, I remember like kind of some of my own, I had to check my own behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I and I was like, oh, ah, I don't need to do this anymore. Like, I don't need to be that kind of leader in this new environment. I can, I can shift 
that, and by the way, be 10 times better and get 10 times more out of my people because I'm aware of what's happening to their physiology as I'm talking yeah. to them. Like have the, has their prefrontal cortex shut down. And yeah. if it has, I'm toast, I'm not getting in. So my goal is to be like, I want the result. And so I'll figure out how do I, how do I get the result? What is the maximum way? And if, and if you become dumber because now your prefrontal cortex shut down because you're feeling like at like, endangered, right? Which I did most days going into work, working in Wall Street, I felt endangered most of the time. Mm. And I just had enough of a biology to be able to manage it. But mm. I think people people get around that. And I think, I think now we are creating an environment where more types of leaders can be successful. And I think it's going to be great for productivity down the line. Amazing. Yeah. And, and absolutely uh, about the uh, same point about uh, diversity and inclusion and and that heterogeneous sort of uh, neurodiversity uh, in, in groups is so fundamental because then you can come up with creative ideas. You can, you know, you can have uh, you can have opposing ideas which lead to more creativity. Um, but how do you how do you manage like does it does it not lead to some sort of chaos? Um, how do you manage that diversity? Because that's the other end of it, right? If it if it becomes too diverse and everybody has like a radical different ideas. How do you manage all that? Well, I think, I think, yes, you have to call it in uh, the field sometimes. And so I remember actually when I first got into OpenTable, thankfully they had actually leaned into a lot of diversity, which also meant a thousand flowers got to bloom, which also meant no big redwoods were getting built. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think pruning the forest, if you will, for what makes a great idea or not. What is the decision criteria that we're going to move or not? I maybe because I came out of so my my um, first operating job was at a company called Playdom, which we then sold to the Walt Disney Company. It was a gaming space, but it was an early entrant into games as a service, so free to play games, which were really data companies design, disguised as a gaming company. And so early, early on, we learned to get signal, and it's like, okay, I have a hypothesis. What's the cheapest, fastest, easiest way to test your hypothesis? Let's go into the market. Let's get signal. Let's adjust. Yeah. And what was interesting there, too, was just um, we would, maybe because it was a gaming company, we would bet on the results of tests. <laughs> and nobody was right more than 40% of the time, which is to say that your belief, your conviction, hypothesis is a great starting point. But nobody is like, I mean, maybe there's Steve Jobs. I guess he can just, you know, divine the future and there's mm -hmm. one. But he's like, he's like a 17 Sigma kind of outcome. <laughs> yeah. like most regular people have to go and say, okay, how do I get this idea? How do I get signal? Is it even testable? Uh, is it cheaply testable? And how do I go do that? And, and I think getting an organization as rigorously operationalized around not just here's a bunch of ideas, but let's, how do we put these into action? And moreover, how do we get signal that that action is worth something? Yeah, yeah. that's absolutely crucial. I think uh, a lot of uh, a lot of companies don't actually do that enough, uh, specifically early on. And even in the mature corporations, I think, you know, that, that one point that you mentioned, it has to be embraced fully. Now, um, I, I always uh, talk about, you know, your journey, but also about people who helped you along the way, your mentors and coaches. So can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, any uh, um, uh, memorable moment or anybody you remember who helped you and made a huge difference in your 
trajectory, like mentors and coaches, like how was that experience? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had a few along the way. I mean, I think one that stands out, certainly um, there's a woman named Sue Decker who had been um, actually CFO and then president at Yahoo. But before she was that, she was an analyst just like myself. Um, she was working on Wall Street, had been at DLJ, and she was the first person who had like literally my exact job, went and worked at a company and she, you know, would give me like points of view along the way. I don't know if she realized, I mean, we still connect a lot, um, but just watching her go from this job over here to that job of it. I mean, the whole idea of representation, like I was like, see it to be it. Right. So I was like, yeah. oh my God, you could actually do that. So when I went to go out of my Wall Street job and into an actual job, just being able to have somebody who went through that experience to be able to lean on. Um, I'm also super thankful and grateful for the guy who hired me actually into that first job because out of Wall Street, because again, if you looked at my background, I had never managed more than like five people before. So if you looked at me on a piece of paper, you would have said, okay, like no chances ladies ever. In fact, I was told one time by a CFO recruiter, he's like, listen, I've never put a CFO in who hadn't already been a CFO. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, well, how am I going to get, how do I get to be a CFO for the first time? Right. Yeah. And so there was, you know, the, you know, my, my boss who had hired me, um, you know, into Playdom and then ultimately Disney, he took a bet on horsepower. And I, I am forever grateful for that too. And I remember that as myself. So when I look at somebody who they may not have done the thing that, I'm, you know, need them to go do. By the way, if you're in an innovative space, if you're in tech, nobody's done what you need them to go do. So yeah. like nobody's done, nobody has the direct experience in the space that you're going or hopefully they don't because then that means you're not being innovative enough. But I had horsepower and he saw the horsepower and he bet on the horsepower. And to me, I look back and say, okay, who are the people around my vicinity who I just was like, I'm betting on the horse. I don't know where the horse is going. And and for, for him to have taken that risk on me was one that I am also forever grateful. And then I think, you know, as we go um, beyond that, you know, those, those big seminal breaks in your career, which I'm super lucky to have had people around. I think it's also really important to like have a network of people. Mm -hmm. So who do I go to if I have a marketing problem? Who do I go to if I have a personal problem? Who do I go to if I have a CEO hiring problem? Who do I go to? Like I have now a coterie. And I think as, as any CEO, they say, it's, oh, the job is lonely. It's, oh, it's so lonely. Like if you have a network of people that you actually can trust and be vulnerable with and can connect on the issues that you're facing, I think that it, it becomes an incredible opportunity that you can lean into. And I have a huge network of people that I tap into regularly and I'm always grateful for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, a lot of people tend to forget it's it's not what uh, we know. It's uh, it's not how we how to do things, but who we know who can help us get it done faster and better. And uh, and as you pointed out, like a lot of people along the way who take bets on us, uh, I think, you know, that's... Uh, that that's also um, uh, a a lucky thing for us, but it also speaks to their own evolution. Because as you said, as we discussed earlier, we really need to look at the details of each person and find that find that person who is not even existing yet. And 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 when people see it in us, that's a, that's a gift. I agree. I agree. No, I mean, I think I think it is. Um, and and how do you then replicate that as you're looking to hire? yourself, right? I mean, I'm always looking 
to see like what gives somebody energy. Mm-hmm. And if I can answer that question, I like, and what's always surprising to me is sometimes like the thing that gives somebody energy is not what the job's going to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's going to be hard for you. And so I'm always looking, what is energy producing? What is energy reducing? And if you can really answer those things, like even if you look at your coming week and you go, oh, I can't wait for this one-on-one. Like it's going to be, we're going to like, or you go, oh my God, I don't want to talk to this person. It's <laughs> awful. Yeah. This person is taking your energy. And if they take your energy, you cannot be as productive. You cannot get into flow. You cannot start like leaning into the business. Mm-hmm. And I think being really mindful of what situations, what people, what part of the organization gives you energy and takes away your energy. And if you know that, then you can harness it like it's an ever-present resource. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, that's that's a very, very uh, deep point, very important point. Just if you can uh, tap into just understanding people's energy and then help them elevate it, I think that's game over. So uh, obviously you have mastered that and you're doing it so well. Thank you so much. Now, before I let you go, can you tell us how people can reach out if they want to connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm probably, my biggest presence is probably on LinkedIn. I kind of have to Twitter. Uh, so you can type in Krista Quarles on LinkedIn and, and send me a note. Uh, I am at uh, C Quarles, I think, uh, at Twitter. I should know my hand, Twitter handle. Awesome. <laughs> um, and, and find me that way. Awesome. We'll put those links in the show notes. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Hey, I'm Sarah, producer of the Bootstrapping Your Dreams Show. show. This episode has come to an end. Don't forget to check out the episode show notes for the links to the resources mentioned in this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Until the next episode, goodbye. Keep going and keep winning.